Thanks very much indeed, Hermione, and thank you very much for inviting me to contribute to this uh, very imaginative series. So, um, music is found in every human culture, and in the great majority of those cultures, it is closely associated with heightened or transformed states of consciousness. Religious experiences, trance, communal dancing, outpourings of public grief and celebration, expressions of solidarity and national identity. I don't think there's much value in trying to claim that music has a unique special significance in this respect, since human beings seem to have an almost limitless capacity to engage their consciousness in powerful ways across a huge spectrum of materials and activities. But as demonstrated by music's extraordinary cultural complexity and the time, passion, and cognitive commitment that people devote to making and consuming music, there does seem to be something particularly rich and far-reaching about the many kinds of musical consciousness with which we all engage. This coming and going in an irritating way. And shall I put it down there? Is that better? Good. (laughs) In short, we put highly significant psychological work into music, and in turn, music carries out powerful and widespread psychological work in our lives. So in order to tackle some parts of the complex psychological work of music, my talk this evening will be divided into three parts. First of all, the psychological work in making and making sense of music. Secondly, the psychological work that music performs in our lives. And thirdly, and probably rather briefly, because I'm sure I'll be running out of time by then, the particular and in some sense peculiar psychological character of works of music. The, the kind of, In other words, the issue, which has been quite a big issue in musicology for about the last 20 years, I suppose now, the issue of the nature of the musical work. So let me turn first then to the psychological work that goes on in making music. And I'm going to use this kind of rather um, umbrella term, making music, really, as it were, to make the point that in most musical cultures, and ours is a rather unusual, and by ours I suppose I now mean the Western classical concert tradition, is a rather unusual one in making distinctions between these kinds of capacities. In most musical cultures the various kind of making activities that I've listed up here are in a much more kind of fluent and flexible relationship than in our culture. So in most musical cultures, people make music by imitating it, by improvising it, by sometimes composing it in that more kind of strict sense, by reading it, learning it, memorizing it, rehearsing it, performing it on their own and with others. But all of these are different ways and different modes of making music. Now, in our classical culture, as I've just said, we, uh, it has become more traditional for, traditional for these various functions to become rather more separated, for there to be a rather kind of starker division of labor. This is actually a comparatively recent phenomenon, and it's worth remembering this. It's a comparatively recent phenomenon, that, and that even as recently as the lives of Mozart and Beethoven, Beethoven, for instance, was known in his own lifetime much more as an an improviser than as a composer. And most composers, up until quite recently, and actually it carries on in a significant way, most composers were and still are performers of their own work, and that kind of fluid relationship between making and remaking music, that one might say is the relationship between composing, improvising, and performing, is a very interesting area. However, to tackle all of that would, on its own, take me considerably more time than we have available. So I'm going to restrict myself initially to to the kind of making music that is involved in playing music from notation. So here is a piece of Western musical notation. The first thing I want to do is to just talk briefly about um, how uh, interesting, subtle, complex, and... uh, and in a sense undetermined as well as determined this kind of notation is. I recognize that some people will know how to read this kind of notation and others not. I 
um, necessarily will largely talk kind of about the, the, the attributes that are visible for those who can, can see the notation. So some things that are indicated in this notation are quite explicit about what a performer to do, should do. Primarily, in this case, um, the pitches of this music. It is pretty much determined what pitches should be played, although some of the pitch notation, which is embodied in these ornaments, allows some degree of flexibility about exactly which notes might be played. It's fairly well determined, even in those. So the pitch structure of this music is pretty well determined. The rhythmic structure is fairly well determined in certain respects, and it tells, us some, it tells the player something about the kind of proportionality of his or her uh, musical performance. But actually, it says very little indeed about the actual durations of these notes. You will notice that this score has no tempo indication whatsoever. It doesn't even have one of those words like kind of, you know, andante or largo or adagio or whatever that gives a performer some sense of, uh, in very general qualitative terms about how fast they should play. It doesn't even have that. So it's wide open, really, in, in, a, in a kind of literal sense. It's wide open as to what speed you might play it and therefore what exact durations these notes might have. Notice also that some things about um, the way in which this music might be played are in, encoded, as it were, in this notation in a quite, um, in a quite concealed way. Uh, you can't see it very well in this first bar, but you can see it slightly better in this second bar, that these three notes in what is probably le played by the left hand of a keyboard player, these three notes have their stems going in different directions. Those stems go in different directions not because of the physical placement of the note heads, because actually in a sort of grade five music theory way, you would expect the stem of this note to come down rather than going up, and likewise this note to come down rather than going up. But actually their stems go up because the, uh, the uh, indication there is to, is to distinguish three, uh, three different parts um, in this bar. These three notes actually existed three different musical voices rather than as, as being three notes within the same voice. And this indication in the notation is, in a sense, a challenge to a performer to think how they might, other than just knowing that that is the case by looking at the notation, how they might realize such a difference in performance. How does a harpsichordist or pianist play, or any keyboard player playing on a keyboard instrument, how do they try to bring out the fact that these three notes, and these three, and these three, of course, um, that these are notes in different voices? And I'll play you a recording in a minute, which... We've had some slight challenges with the sound system in here, so it's not going to be quite as, um, uh, as uh, well reproduced a recording as it might be. But I think you, will try and, you, you may hear that the, the player, who is Glenn Gould in this case, does do things to make it sound when he plays these three notes and these three notes as if they are in different parts. Exactly how he's doing it, um, we could speculate about. So the first thing to say about making music and the psychological work that goes into making music is that even the reading process is an extraordinarily sophisticated psychological process if one is to bring out all that is both explicit and implicit in a notation like this. And there is a great deal more that could be said about it, and there has been a substantial amount of very interesting research on what the reading process is uh, what, what goes on in the reading process when people look at music like this. So, uh, alongside the reading process, which we could think of as being kind of the beginning of some of the psychological work that goes into making music in this sense, following that, of course, there is an enormous amount of work that goes into the development of the motor skills that are necessary to control a performance sufficiently to do the things that a performer has noticed from this notation. There are... The rehearsing and practicing skills that go on into refining that and in monitoring your own performance and shaping it in various ways. There are, and then there are, of course, the performing skills which are involved in playing this either to a microphone or to an audience. And those performing skills, the things that go into making a performance interesting and engaging and expressive, have been the subject of a great deal of work. In fact, there's, there's over a century now of, of, of very explicit empirical research on what it is that makes performances expressive, what distinguishes different expressive performances from one another, and where that expression 
as it were, comes from, what that expression is about, where it comes from, and uh, what it's doing. So let me play you then this recording of Glenn Gould. Um, It's the recording that he made in 1981, just a year before he died, um, playing just this part of the aria of the Goldberg Variations. So I think you can hear from that, um, despite the problems with the timbre of the sound perhaps, but you can hear from that how extraordinarily carefully Gould is uh, controlling the timing of that performance. And all of that micro um, adjustment of tempo is of course one of the the most important features of expressive musical performance. Now, I don't have any kind of empirical data on Gould's performances, so let's turn to another piece of music, which was the object of some empirical work that I did um, about 15 years ago now. This is the Chopin Prelude in E minor, um, which has the useful, from an empirical point of view, the useful feature, that it has a completely kind of constant grain of activity. This con- apart from that bar there, the constant quaver movement that goes on in the left hand of this piece provides um, as a, a, kind of, a, a kind of built-in metronome, if you like, by which you can measure the continuous fluctuation of tempo in a performance. And what I did was to get a professional performer to come and play this music on a conventional grand piano, but as it were, a conventional grand piano that has the special feature that you can hook it up to a computer and measure with as much detail as you would ever want um, the timing and uh, loudness and articulation of every note that the performer plays. And this gives one an insight into, uh, at least gives one the data to talk about uh, from a kind of empirical, from a, a, a completely explicit point of view, what it is that is going on in an expressive performance of the kind that we've just heard. So this is one kind of way of looking at just some of the data that you get from such a performance. Um, What you have here is, first of all, much more information than I will ever be able to deal with um, this evening, but just to give you some idea, what you have here is actually the trace of two performances. This professional performer gave about five or six performances of the piece in the course of one afternoon. He was asked just to play it. We, we asked him actually to play it three times, but he rather enjoyed this process and went on and gave us kind of five or six performances in the end. Um, and they were all given more or less, you know, he had a, a brief pause between one and the other and talked in fairly um, extraordinary ways, actually, about what he was thinking about in between these performances. But he gave them with no specific instruction that he should either play them the same or different, just to play it and then to play it again and then to play it again and so on. And he found this a perfectly reasonable thing to do, as many performers will. So what you have here is the trace of just two of those performances. First of all, broadly speaking, tempo information down here, and secondly, dynamic information up here. I'm only going to talk about tempo because there's too much to talk about otherwise. So one thing that you can see, and what you have here is really uh, note by note, or actually it's chord by chord, since he's playing mostly triadic chords in the the left hand, chord by chord tempo. So this is the timing for the first chord in the first bar, the second, these are quaver chords. So this is a very, very microscopic view of this performance. 
But at this, and you can see that in broad terms, forget that the scale here is really kind of irrelevant, but what you can see, this is one bar of music here, you can see that in the course of that first bar of music, the tempo actually changes by nearly 100%. This point here is more or less twice as fast momentarily as this point here. And it gives some indication that the kind of tempo fluctuation that you hear in expressive performances like this is, at a physical level, really very considerable. It's not actually how it strikes the ear, but from a measurement point of view, a great deal is changing, and changing very fast, in fact. So one thing that you can see immediately is that these two performances are extraordinarily similar to one another. For large parts of the performance, the, the, the data lie absolutely on top of each other. And yet at other points, such as here, um, there are considerable differences between these two performances. And the question is, what are these similarities and differences all about? Well, the similarities are largely determined by very strong, basic but strong features of the music itself. This is a kind of bar-by-bar periodicity that you see, at least for the first four bars of the piece, that reflects some very obvious phrase and harmonic features of the music itself. So you could say, to, uh, 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 in this part of the music, expression is being very largely determined by or influenced by or even driven by structural properties of the music. Later, things get a bit more complex, partly because the structure of the music itself becomes slightly less regular and also because the performer clearly sees that there are different opportunities to do different kinds of things and chooses to take some of those opportunities. You can see, for instance, in the, in the dynamic data, in a very broad sense, that one of the performances starts, broadly speaking, loud and gets quieter over this part and then gets loud again, and the other does almost the opposite, starts quiet, gets louder, and then gets quieter. And so, in other words, you could say that this performer is kind of, in the course of giving a number of performances, experimenting with different kinds of ways of expressing this music. Let me play you then a recording of um, just the first five or six bars of this piece, and I'll kind of um, use the pointer to show you where we are in this tempo graph. and so on. So what sounds like a completely fluent performance, I mean, we, we hear this as having a, a, a much kind of smoother acoustical quality, if you like, than these data would suggest. And what we, so that what we're extracting from this kind of um, activity is something about kind of tension and relaxation and about progress and holding back and all of those kinds of things. So, as I say, a great deal of work has been carried out in looking at um, what are the, the features of expressive performances, how one might account for them um, in terms of structural and other properties, and I should emphasize that although a, a period of this research was fixated on the notion that expression in musical performance was kind of determined virtually by structure, over the last 20 years, 15 or 20 years, people have acknowledged that, of course, expression is much more than just about, exp uh, about projecting the structure of music. It is about a whole variety of different kinds of things. And one of the things that has dramatically changed this work is the increasing recognition of how historical change has affected expressive musical performance. I was for five years a member of a, a research center called the Center for the History and Analysis of Recorded Music, and being part of that center drove home to me because I actually, until that time, was not very um, well-versed in or even particularly interested in historical recordings. It brought home just how dramatically the performance of music has changed over the comparatively short, it's about a century now, of the comparatively short history of recorded performance. The, existed, the existence now of over a century of recorded performance provides an amazingly interesting resource for actually hearing how people played music at the turn of the 20th century through till now. Okay, well, 
making music in the way I've been talking about it is, in a sense, obviously, one way of making sense of music. But the more general, uh, the, the other way of making sense of music that I want to turn to now is to think about how we make sense of music while we listen to it. The two performances, the two pieces of music that I've just played to you present us with music, which I think probably for most of us is relatively kind of transparent and apparently effortless to make sense of in, that mo in the most simple sense of hearing something that seems sensible, um, uh, that, that seems comparatively effortless to do. But this is arguably um, as illusory as it is to, to, to um, apparently effortlessly make sense of, the, of your own native language. Listening to, his, to someone speak your own native language appears to be a, a kind of almost transparent process unless people use particularly complex syntactical structures. But we're, of course, brought up short when we hear people speaking a language we don't know when suddenly the complexity of what's going on when we listen to our own language is brought into sharp relief. So kind of by loose analogy, here is another piece of piano music which you may find less easy immediately to make sense of. In fact, coming across that music unawares, some people might think, is this just kind of somewhat random notes played on the piano? This is actually Messiaen's piece, Mode de valeur et d'intensité, written in the late 1940s, and exploring the possibilities of a kind of total organization of the musical structure, paradoxically, a total organization of the musical structure, which, for various kind of reasons that I'm not going to go into today, um, makes it complex to organize at the level of the surface structure. So... Music psychologists have spent a great deal of um, effort and energy looking at how it is that we make sense of musical structures as listeners. And there are, I'm going to claim for the moment at least, two kinds of traditions of doing so. The dominant one, which, has been, which one might call musical kind of information processing, has been to look at what are the psychological processes by which we put together the kind of surface structures of music into what, might, what I could call the kind of basic elements of musical structure. So simple rhythmic structures, pitch structures, the sense of tonality, all of those kinds of attributes. How do we put together the material of music into something that coheres? Although that work has achieved a great deal, I think it also has missed a great deal. And in my own work more recently, particularly in, in the book that I'm mentioned ways of listening, I explore a rather different approach to thinking about music perception, which is to look at the ways in which um, our processing of musical materials is about the search for musical meaning. And, the musical, and, and musical meaning expressed not in terms of kind of uh, syntax and semantics, if you like, not the kind of meaning that we might uh, associate with linguistic meaning, but a kind of more generalized notion that what we want to know about the world in general, and music in particular, is what's going on. And what's going on in the world and in a piece of music is a tremendously multiple, multiple and uh, many-leveled kind of things. There are some rather kind of, uh, if you like, basic, although no less interesting for that reason, basic and immediate and practical things about the objects and actions that we identify going on in the world, whether we hear them or see them or feel them or smell them or touch them. There are things about the spaces and places that we inhabit. And in the case of music, there are things about the musical genres and the tonal structures and the textures and the formal shapes and so on that we want to know about. Now, these are this kind of list of what's going on can be related, of course, to everyday sounds. And part of the point of my own book, Ways of Listening, is to, is to argue that there is actually a greater continuity between 
our auditory relationship to the world in general and our auditory relationship to music than has commonly been thought to be the case, both in the psychology of music and in some sense within musicology. Both the psychology of music, in fact, perhaps particularly the psychology of music and musicology, have tended to regard music as a rather kind of autonomous and closed-off sphere, sphere with very special properties that are not like the properties of the general auditory environment. I actually think there's a great deal to be gained by thinking about music as if it was, and of course it is, part of the more general auditory environment, and to use some of the same explanatory processes to think about music as we do in thinking about that wider world. So here's a sound clip. Uh, you might just think, what's going on in relation to this sound clip? Okay, well, to begin with, we don't really know what's going on. It could be many things that are going on. It could be someone crunching around in some leaves or, uh, I don't know, eat, uh, cracking up some celery. Or there are various possibilities. But as soon as you hear the characteristic sound of teeth and actually not crisps but quavers in this case, just to make the, the bad joke that that involves, these are quavers being eaten. That's the snack quaver, as it were. Um, so this is the sound of someone eating. And the meaning of this sound is this is someone eating crisps. I don't think we have any problem with that. But then what do we think the meaning of this slightly longer sound clip is? This is an extract from a, um, a track by a, a group called the Avalanches, who are an Australian um, kind of electronic music, dance music uh, duo, who make music out of sampling enormous numbers of different kinds of sounds. And just listen to the complexity, and I think, for me at least, interest, of the kind of auditory scene, we could call it, after Albert Bregman, who wrote a book called Auditory Scene Analysis, of the auditory scene that, this, that these sounds convey. I'd invite you to think about both the kind of spaces and places and objects and actions, but also the kinds of musical genres and, if you like, almost musical ideologies that are conveyed through these sounds. It's about a one-minute clip, I guess. Now, this isn't just a random collage of sounds at all. There's actually, there are all kinds of um, sounds in there that are actually sp incredibly specific to certain kinds of music. First of all, there is the film track of Lawrence Arabia going on in the background. I don't know if you noticed that, but it's there. And, but secondly, there are things like the, the characteristic sound of what's called turntabling or scratching that you hear just before the end of that clip, which is a powerful indicator of the kind of presence of a certain kind of dance music in this otherwise extremely complex auditory scene. And of course, we overlook the fact that the sounds that we hear at the beginning are the sounds of, well, we don't overlook, we take for granted that these are the sounds of horses' hooves and of people speaking and of people telling us about states of the world and so on. So all of this are aspects of what's going on in the sound, what's going on in this auditory scene conveyed to us by sound. So in thinking about this kind of way of making sense of music, it takes me on to consider the second part of my talk, and I will try and get through this rather more quickly now, about the psychological work that music performs. In a sense, we've already had a little bit of a glimpse of that psychological work. Um, it informs us by engaging us with musical materials and, in a sense, sharpening up our perceptual and cognitive processes. One of the things that music, as well as other kinds of human skills, one of the things that it achieves is to make us get better at doing the thing that it encourages us to do. So we become better listeners through our engagement with music, um, not only through explicit training, but through the intrinsically rewarding process of having a better handle on something that we find interesting and engaging. Clearly, 
and this is the thing that most people say they listen to music for, uh, you know, surveys have shown, dot, 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 um, that emotional engagement and kind of mood management are a very important way in which music does psychological work in our lives. It also has important aspects of kind of social facilitation about it. We use music to lubricate various kinds of social situations to make them easier or um, more effective or more persuasive. We use music to achieve all kinds of social effects like group cohesion and the formation of social identities and the construction of our own identities. And then there's a kind of category of ways in which we use music to change our minds in various kinds of ways. So broadly speaking, various kinds of consciousness transformation that can be achieved by means of music, I suppose most obviously in the use of music in relation to meditation and trance, but also in music therapy, in advertising, where it helps to persuade people to do some certain things, and sadly, in torture. Music has been used in Guantanamo Bay, um, for instance, to make people confess to things they either did or didn't do. So music has, powerful, uh, has a very powerful impact on, broadly speaking, human subjectivity. I use the word subjectivity to bring together a whole range of things that, that include perhaps aspects of consciousness, identity, agency. And uh, uh, the reason why my own, my own forthcoming book is called Musical Subjectivity is, is that I find the notion of subjectivity a more inclusive one than any of those alternatives. So it is a way of constructing, expressing, and potentially transforming our own subjectivity. And in that sense, I think it has extremely powerful um, functions. So what might be um, some of the ways in which we... First of all, let me give you two, briefly two ways in which this is expressed. First of all, by T.S. Eliot, who talks about music heard so deeply that it's not heard at all, but you are the music while the music lasts. So a sense of, that music can become an expression of one's own subjectivity or a vehicle for one's own subjectivity. And in a kind of rather different register, if you like, Giles Smith, who is a pop music journalist, talking in a book significantly called Lost in Music, and that sense of being lost in the music is something that we rather relish, writes, there is nothing like pop music for getting you out of yourself, but the opposite and equal truth is there is nothing like pop music for centering in yourself. Listening through headphones, which is even now my favorite way to hear things, to sink into them sealed off so that there's no distraction, at which point Pop music was not the soundtrack to your life, it was your life. So how, do we, how might we explain, in a kind of broadly psychological sense, why it is that we find music so subjectively engaging? Well, one, a kind of word that kind of captures some of this is the word empathy or Einfühlung, as uh, Theodor Lips, the philosopher who kind of, broadly speaking, uh, used this word and popularized it, and who was incidentally a considerable influence on Freud, as, uh, as, as Lips puts it, Einfühlung, the way, the, our ability to feel into a musical material. And here, in very broad terms, I think it is music's dynamic, temporal, and as I put, non-spatial and kind of social character that makes it so kind of attractive to and amenable to our consciousness entering into it. By social, what I mean is that music has built into it a kind of a property of multiplicity. It's, it's multivocal, it's po polyphonic, you might want to say, quality. It means that we hear it as, have, as having properties that are like the ways in which human beings engage with one another. A second kind of explanation that's been offered is a broadly speaking semiotic one. So seeing musical materials as sign systems that are powerfully related to the ways in which human, human agents act in the world. A third way, and the way that I've pursued in my work largely, is the relationship between perception and action that is embodied in musical materials. The kind of um, the, the way in which music has the capacity to entrain our own actions to its um, rhythmic structures and the neuroscientific evidence that shows that when people are listening to music, significant motor areas of their brains are active. And one expression of that is the much talked about, and I remember coming to a, a talk here actually given by Ramachandran about uh, two years ago in which he talked about mirror neurons, the much talked about mirror neurons, parts of the brain motor areas of the brain that are active when we observe or actually listen to actions in the outside world with which we can engage.
And a colleague of mine in the music faculty here, Georgina Bourne, I think puts the um, relationship between music and ourselves rather well when she writes, music is perhaps the paradigmatic, multiply mediated, immaterial and material, fluid, quasi-object in which subjects and objects collide and intermingle. It favours associations or assemblages between musicians and instruments, composers and scores, listeners and sound systems, that is, between subjects and objects. And arguably what music has the capacity to do is to kind of blur the boundary between subject and object. We regard a piece of music that we are listening intensely to as being the object of our perception or in some sense a kind of subject that we inhabit and identify with. And in a slightly different way, but I think in a very interesting way, Alistair Williams has written in, a, in an article which is concerned with the relationship between um, the music of Wolfgang Riem and the, Wolfgang, and the music of uh, Schumann, writes, music is an invitation to subjectivity. It participates in the construction of subjectivity by allowing us to inhabit it with our bodies and to experience something beyond the confines of ourselves. Thus, when we interact with music, we are asked to occupy a subject position, or put more precisely, we are interpolated by a subject position to which we can respond by means of identification, dialogue, or rejection. And I think that last part indicates very clearly the way in which we can feel alienated by music. We can feel that music invites us to a kind of subjectivity with which we want to have nothing to do, just as much as it can offer us attractive alternative subject positions. So let me finally then move on to a brief consideration of the musical work. And there, are, there is at least one person in the audience who is far more qualified to talk about this than I am, my illustrious predecessor, Reinhard Strom, who is here, who has written about the musical work in very interesting ways. What I will say is only this, really, that the, the notion of a musical work is, again, a comparatively culturally and historically specific and, in, it, at least according to some people, rather historically recent um, phenomenon. We think of the musical, of, of pieces of music as being you know, kind of obvious things, the, a Chopin prelude, the aria to, or the Goldberg variations as a whole perhaps or something like that. But actually it has been argued, at least by Lydia Gurr, a philosopher who's written, who wrote a very influential book called The Imaginary Museum of Musical Works, um, it's been argued that the notion of a musical work, at least in the way in which we now conceive of it, i.e. of a fixed and finished thing that can be performed in different versions, that that is a comparatively historically recent phenomenon, and one that is rather specific to Western concert music culture. In very broad terms, you might say, the notion of a musical work is probably a, is of the order of 200 to 250 years old. And it's interesting, for instance, that the Hollywell Music Room which is a building specifically designed for the public performance of, one might say, musical works, and is the oldest um, public music room still in use as a music room in Europe, is, dates from exactly that, the kind of beginning of the, the, the history of the work, 1750-ish. That it is in part the kind of institution of the public concert that has made us think of musical works as much as it is anything intrinsic to musical materials that makes us think that they are works. And the consequence of this idea of a musical work is to start to regard musical works as if they were kind of self-sufficient and sealed off against the world, as if they had a kind of autonomy. And an autonomy that comes both with certain kinds of drawbacks, it has the, 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 the danger that it ossifies musical works in the way that our culture arguably has done so, and we go on and on repeating a kind of rather fixed canon of musical works, it has that danger, but it also offers a rather interesting opportunity, and that is the opportunity to experience a kind of virtual world, which is the world of the work. And I think that the, the, you know, the, the notion of a musical work and the problems of the, of the musical work have been much discussed, discussed in musicology and arguably at the expense of recognizing that, of course, musical works and that notion of an autonomy, false though it is in many ways, there is no way in which music can be divorced from the world. It is a product of socialized human beings and therefore is necessarily of the world. But the illusion that music can separate itself from the kind of everyday circumstances of reality gives us a kind of space in which to explore all kinds of interesting and extraordinary things. So in that sense, 
um, that autonomy, false though it is, affords a certain kind of human experience which we all find rather powerful. So the separation of the, wor- of, of the work from the world, the kind of lack of function, it's apparently disengaged uh, property in relation to uh, you know, social functions, summed up in, in the kind of pithy phrase that the, the, the philosopher Theodore Adorno um, uses, the function of functionlessness. It is the function of these, musics of, uh, these works of music, arguably, in a certain kind of ideology, to be functionless so that they can achieve something which, if they're only embodied in, uh, embedded in social functions, they cannot. It is this paradoxical feature that it both takes them away from reality and offers a different kind of reality. So, to sum up, music has a perhaps I'll just close that. Music has a powerful capacity to express, construct, project, and engage human subjectivity. In doing so, it affords powerful insights into other subjectivities, real or imagined. And it is in this respect, perhaps more than any other, that it has emancipatory potential. It provides us with a domain in which to explore and experience what it is like to be human in terms that are on the one hand familiar and on the other hand transformed. From one perspective, this is not surprising. Music is the product of human action and bears the trace of that action in the palpable and manifest ways that we know. Musical sounds, like any sounds, specify their sources, the sounds of the bodies, instruments, and actions that make music, most strikingly, perhaps, in the sound of the voice, but also much more widely and in ways that take in the virtual sources of studio production processes, amongst others. If music were no more than the acoustical trace of human action, it might have little more than a kind of documentary interest, the sounds of people going about their everyday lives. It is the aesthetic framing, transformation, and ordering of that material, the mediation of the sounds of human action by musical systems, ideologies, and technologies. In other words, the intervention of human imagination and creativity that distinguishes music from location recordings and turns sound into an aesthetic object or process. And one specific manifestation of that process is the musical work. Music has the capacity to convey, extend, express, and transform human subjectivity, and in doing so, it becomes for many people one of the most richly fulfilling and psychologically important domains of their subjective and intersubjective experience. And this, it seems to me, is the work of music. Thank you very much. I think there's a microphone just coming. Some years back, I read that the scholar Edward Said and the distinguished Swedish um, director Ingmar Bergman spent the last years of their last period of life just listening to classical music. And this seems to sort of connect up with what you've talked about, transformation of subjectivity. In some sense, it seems that there was a certain kind of change in meaning in this way that perhaps would be related to things like self-awareness and the concept of space and time. And um, would you consider that music could have that function, that people, when they are aging, could derive some kind of solace from what I would call an alteration in their existential anxiety by this change of subjectivity. And then I could ask you whether you would write a memorandum to suggest that all colleges in Oxford have a music room for their elder citizens, (laughs) senior citizens, and that, you know, you could book your time and play that music and announce it, and others could join in who feel that it might be some kind of solace to them in 
their later years. Thanks very much. Yes, that's a very interesting um, point and question. I think that it's certainly true that music has, um, as I've been saying, you know, a powerful impact on people's consciousness and subjectivity. And it is also true that uh, music, I mean, music therapists working with elderly patients and with people sometimes, you know, with very serious dementia, Alzheimer's disease and so on, find that musical memories are some, are, can be extremely deep-seated memories and that the cap- capacity to engage with music is one that in many cases lasts very, very late into people's lives. And there are, of course, many examples of um, uh, you know, distinguished musicians who go on playing music into well, Elliot Carter is uh, is over a hundred now, and there are and still composing, and there are um, performers who carry on playing into their nineties, certainly. So, music seems to be something that is incredibly deeply laid down, at least in some people's lives. I, as I said right at the beginning, I'm I'm always a bit reluctant to make very special cases for music paradoxically, even though I happen to be a professor of music, uh, because I think it always it comes with the risk that you put music up on a pedestal from which it can only fall. And I think that you know, there are other people who no doubt in very late life find painting or drama or film or dancing um, equally things that are powerful or reading, powerfully engaging and subjectively transformative. I mean, I suppose one of the things, I, I, I've, as Hermione mentioned, I've just, we're just coming to the end, me and a, a colleague, um, to, coming to the end of editing a book on music and consciousness. And I've been, therefore, thinking about the, the relationship between music and consciousness rather a lot. And one of the things about music, of course, and I pointed that out in my, my talk, is that the kind of temporal, dynamic, non-spatial, imaginative space that it occupies allows us to engage with it, with our consciousness, in a particularly striking and profound way. The fact that, that listening can go on without requiring us to have particular kind of motor skills. But, I mean, you know, with the advent of recording, this has made, had made, has made available to all of us incredibly powerful um, musical experiences without having to play music ourselves. We tend to, you know, some people are rather down on recorded music. I, th- I regard, rec- the rec- you know, recording as being the most amazingly democratizing effect on music. So it does indeed allow for these very powerful experiences. And I should mention that at Wadham, I have actually started, each term I have an evening called the Wadham Music Exchange at which anyone can come along and play a piece of music and talk about it. And it's proved very interesting to hear people come along, play a piece, you know, a track or a movement or whatever it is of a piece of music and talk about it. And nearly always they talk about it in ways that are to do with the embedding of that music in their everyday lives. I think my question is uh, sort of related about music and healing. Do you have any thoughts on that, specifically music and pain, and specifically the relationship of the music of Bach to migraine sufferers? Is that a psychological thing? (laughs) It is certainly a psychological thing. Um, I don't have anything to say about, I don't think, about the, re- the relationship of specific composers' music to healing. I mean, I th- a lot has been made, for instance, the, the, the now infamous Mozart effect. This is wor- um, the, the, some empirical work done in the 1990s, which appeared to show that if you play a particular piece of Mozart to people, it uh, changes their spatial IQ um, actually over a rather short period of time, but the, for a, a period of time, their spatial IQ increases. I think this work is actually vacuous. <laughs> I think it's entirely unlikely that some particular piece of, of, of Mozart has this dramatic effect on people, no matter what their background. And actually, subsequent empirical work has shown that to be based on extremely shaky kind of empirical processes. I don't really think that individual composers' music Um, necessarily has particular healing effects. But I do profoundly believe that music can have, uh, as I've been saying, a a significant impact on people's lives. But I think it does so in incredibly diverse kinds of ways. Music therapists use music to achieve sometimes really dramatic um, changes in people's uh, psychological and social functioning because it engages an enormous variety of different kinds of psychological capacities. It involves, since most British music therapy at least, involves people playing music together, it involves incredibly important
important motor skills and uh, you know, relationships of agency with a therapist. It involves cognitive and perceptual skills and the refinement of those skills. It involves emotional skills. It involves social skills. And because music has the capacity to engage with all of those different kinds of things, I think it can have very profoundly healing, if you like, broadly healing effects in a lot of different circumstances. But I don't believe that the sound of music in some kind of either magical or mystical way can directly affect people's bodies. When, when I heard uh, Baron Boim giving the, the Reese lectures mm. he, uh, a, a few years ago, he drew a distinction between hearing and listening, mm. rather a fierce distinction, mm. because he so hates the fact you know you get into the lift in the hotel and you've got to listen to a, you know, a, a Beethoven sonata or something, you don't want to listen to it. Yep. When you say that there's a closer relationship between our auditory relation to the environment and our auditory relation to music... Mm that you would argue there's a much closer relation. Mm. Do you then not believe in that distinction between hearing and listening? I believe in the distinction. Um, I could hardly avoid it, if you see what I mean. I believe it, but I don't think I um, valorize it in the same way that Barenboim and others do. I think we have become fixated on a particular kind of listening, which indeed has very powerful and important qualities, which is that kind of highly attentive listening, which, and again, within musicology, is associated with what's, what has been called structural listening, the following of musical structures as if they were a kind of abstract narrative, and if you lose the thread, then you may as well not be listening at all. That is a very particular kind of listening. It has very important kinds of qualities, but it is certainly not the only kind of listening. And I think the kind of what might even be called distracted listening that goes on in other kinds of circumstances can also have very important functions. I think we tend to think that if, you know, a person who goes to a concert and thinks as they come out, oh, God, you know, I spent the, the middle quarter of an hour about, of that thinking about X, Y, and Z problem rather than listening to the music, I must be a bad listener, slash, slash kind of thing, I think is profoundly wrong in being so self-flagellating because I think that the way in which music can actually um, enhance other kinds of ways of thinking can kind of, if you like, again, to use the kind of lubricate word, can lubricate our own ways of thinking about the world is potentially as important as a function of listening as it is to have heard the recapitulation at the, you know, at the end of the, towards the end of the first movement of the Hammerclavier Sonata by Beethoven. I mean, how does that change the world? <laughs> it might change you. Yes, it might. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, um, I think we've all been listening with, with gripped attention to what, to me, has been sort of rivetingly lucid uh, account of different kinds of work, the work of listening, the work of performance, the work of the making of music. At one point, you use the headline, what's going on, mm. uh, as the way into thinking about this. And I think we all have a, a, a much enhanced sense of what's going on uh, in the work of music from, from this talk. So thank you very, very much. Thank you very much.